Hello, everybody. It's Chet. And this is episode 126 of the Dark Art Society podcast. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Today, I'm going to interview Frank Forte. Now, Frank is a friend of mine who is a multidisciplinary artist. He's a fine artist. He's a comic book artist. He's a storyboard artist. <clears throat> and we had a really interesting conversation. Actually, I already interviewed him a couple of days ago and had a really interesting conversation about working in the film industry and being a storyboard artist, which I thought was pretty fascinating. So uh, it went well. And I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, so let's see. Before we get started, first off, I want to ask you something. Is this format of this show something you are into? Like, do you like the, the intro I do, or do you just want the interview? Because I'm trying to, <clears throat> since Mike left the show, I'm trying to kind of fill in um, the space we had in the beginning where we talked and I'm trying to just, you know, do that by giving an update on what's going on with me and doing the five question thing. Is this something you all are into? Because I'm just curious because, uh, someone commented on the Ta Tom Taggart show. It was a fan of Tom's on his, um, Facebook page and said that the host took too long to get to your, to your intro or to your interview. And so I was like, hmm, I wonder if I'm going off too long in the beginning. So I can take it. I, I just want to make the show as uh, good as I can for the listeners. So if people aren't into it, I'm totally happy to cut my intro down or cut it out completely, really. Um, it's just more work for me to do, so it's not uh, a big deal. But I, I honestly want to know, so if you could comment on that and or write me or whatever just let me know if you're satisfied with the format if you have any ideas for changes you know i'm always open to hearing uh ideas new ideas and stuff so that was what i wanted to ask you first <clears throat> and i wanted to give a pitch again for my patreon i'm going to probably be doing this all month because i'm really really trying hard to to uh, get my patreon to a level that it can to where it can sustain my life and I won't have to go crazy and work myself to death. So if you have it in your heart, if you're a fan of my work, if you want to support me in any way, you don't even have to spend money on big ticket items. You could just join the Patreon, my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash chetzar, and you could join for a dollar, you could join for $3, $5, $10, $50, or $100. And there's a lot of different <clears throat> rewards you get for these different levels, but uh, anything helps. And I'm really pushing to get more people on board. I mean, I mean, I've got a pretty good for if, as far as Patreons go. I have a pretty good amount of people. It's like 200 and something, 240 or something, or 220. I can't remember. 
but it's you know it's definitely not bad but it's not enough to really kind of make make it to where i can just create content for the patreon so um i'm asking for your help if you're if you're into it you know i'm there's so much content on there that i haven't been posting on social media like instagram like i don't post new artwork on instagram i'm only posting kind of old old paintings i have and my patreon's got all the new work it's you'll be surprised if you join it there's like oh i think over a year years worth of work on there that hasn't been posted so um it's really good people love it once they once they join they love it so uh, that's my pitch oh and the most important part i'm giving away a free glow in the dark gas mask pin like an exclusive pin that you can only get through the patreon i won't be selling it in my store i might sell them at conventions but i don't do that many conventions but um, it's mainly for the patreon people and it's free and you don't even have to pay for shipping no matter where you live in the world which is going to be really expensive but i want to get people in here so there's my pitch while you're at it you can join the dark art society patreon for only a buck a month and uh let me i'm gonna read off i think there's i don't know uh yeah i think there's two two new subscribers i don't know if i read this one last week destiny het thank you for joining and Kristen, thank you for joining so those are the new subscribers and that supports the podcast and pays for everything and allows me to take the time to make this podcast and the bigger it gets the bigger the dark art society will get and the more cool stuff we'll be able to do so that's the that's the plan it's just it's not really at a level right now financially to where we could do a whole lot but it's getting there little by little you know two people two dollars at a time Every week or so, maybe. Every month, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Uh, and you know the best thing about Patreon? My last part of the pitch is that your data is not getting mined. Like Every time you go on Facebook, and Instagram, they're using your data. Watch The Great Hack if you don't know about this, which I'm sure most of you do, but it kind of explains how they have 5,000 points of information on you, on every person who's on Facebook and social media. It's really disturbing. And then they use that to market to you and try and manipulate your political views and this and that. So that's another cool thing about paying, paying for your content, <clears throat> which is you're barely paying anything. It's such a small amount of money for what you're getting on there. And you don't have to worry about your data being mined. And the guys who started Patreon are also artist as well as a musician anyway okay that's all uh five questions let's get to that mm. scott holloway three of your favorite renaissance paintings you know i probably only have one real favorite renaissance painting because i'm not super influenced by renaissance paintings i've only come to appreciate old masters paintings in my adult life like as a kid 
uh, I think we talked about this on the podcast. As a kid, I just did not have an appreciation for it. Just didn't do anything for me, really. It was more about comic books and stuff I could relate to. But I did always love the Hieronymus Bosch Garden of Earthly Delights, particularly the hell section. So that would probably be it for me. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm not that super educated on Renaissance paintings. I'm always trying to learn. And I suppose if I sat down and really thought about it, I could come up with the top three. But as far as one that just jumps to the forefront when that question is asked of me, it's the Garden of Earthly Delights. It's the only thing that comes to mind. Okay, Derek Walborn, what do you do to keep painting feeling fresh and exciting? Someone, uh, someone who has not painted in years due to a lack of inspiration. Well, I find that painting new subjects is, is exciting, or uh, painting something that you haven't painted before that's, that's difficult to do. That can make things more excite, exciting. Um, Try experimenting with new mediums. Anything you haven't done before is going to add interest. Uh, that's it. You know, another thing you could try uh, painting, giving yourself a time limit. You know, say I'm going to paint something in three hours, no matter how it looks. That's what it's going to be. So it's kind of like you're playing games with yourself, but that's cool. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a way of reinvigorating yourself. So those are, those are a couple of suggestions I have. All right. Graham John Parker, if you could show your artwork in one place, gallery, museum, country, et cetera, where would it be and why? Hmm. Hmm. I guess the Giger Museum would be pretty cool. Uh, I don't have, you know, my, my goals as an artist are not really showing somewhere. They're more like, you know, creating big pieces or I have a lot of ideas for what I want to do, but it's not necessarily showing somewhere. But <sighs> probably the Giger Museum, I guess. I've shown in <clears throat> a couple respectable, legitimate, quote unquote, legitimate art galleries like the Laguna. What was it? Laguna. Uh, some some famous gallery in Laguna Beach. <laughs> um, and then the the Guillermo del Toro show that I was in showed a, um, a bunch of legit. Uh, museums that was cool but I don't know it's not a, it's not a top priority for, priority for me although it's good for my career and stuff and it is cool it's just not my primary focus mm, let's see Patrick Ty what's your morning routine when you wake up before a long day in the studio how do you prepare and relax your mind for another day of creating well Patrick I wish that's the way it was I wish it was get up, prepare, and then relax my mind for another day of creating. But really what happens is, 
especially lately. Here's what's been happening lately. I'm trying to get my life in order because after that show I did for the Bain Art Gallery, I just just wiped myself out. Terrible. Just really abused myself to get those things done. And now I'm getting back, getting up at six in the morning, um, waking up, takes me about an hour, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, which I know are terrible. And, and I do plan on quitting, but, um, one thing at a time. Uh, and then after about an hour or so, I will meditate for 30 minutes. Uh, no, actually, no, that's not true. First I'll take a shower, brush my teeth. Then I go and meditate for 30 minutes. Then I start my day. But the thing is, it's not a big day of creating. It's like, okay, then I have to go and sort through orders and figure out prints I got to print out and just a lot of business stuff, answer emails. That usually takes up until lunchtime. And then I don't usually don't get to painting until the afternoon. And I'm still kind of trying to work that out because now that I'm going to bed earlier, it doesn't give me a lot of time to paint. So I'm sort of in the process of reorganizing my schedule and seeing what works. Someday, someday, hopefully it will be just be about creating the work, but there's a lot of business stuff that goes along with it that I have to deal with. So I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying that's the way it is. Okay. Did I do everything? I did everything. Okay. So, okay. I hope you enjoy this interview with Frank Forte. Thank you for listening. And here we go. What's up, Frank? Hey, Chad. How are you, man? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, great. Thanks for having me, man. You've got such a crazy skill set, crazy yeah, career. Right? You've done so much. You've done a lot of storyboard stuff too, which is why I didn't re- realize you did so much storyboard work. Yeah, I do a lot of storyboard work. That's kind of my main job. But yeah, I kind of bounced around a lot. You know, I was into comic books. I really wanted to be a comic artist. You know, that was mm-hmm. my dream. I uh, did special effects for haunted houses. Came out here to LA, do the fine art thing. Um, yeah, I've animation. seen. Yeah, I saw I kinda, your your show. Well, you had a show at La Luz de Jesus, right? Yeah, last year I think it was a part of a four person show with Chris Ulrich, yeah, right. uh, Jasmine Worth, and Ave Rose, which yeah. was real fun. Yeah, that was great stuff. I love uh, that. I love that whole series you did. It's really funny and weird. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was great. It was great to be with. Uh, I thought Matt Kennedy had put it together, put together a great show having the four of us in there. Yeah, it was it was ex- excellent it's show. So, what let's get back, let's get to uh let's let's start off with the standard questions of your your history, your background, were you the weird art kid at school? Uh, sure. you know, what <laughs> did you go to art school and all that stuff? So, let's Yeah, start. I guess in high school I guess I, I was the weird art kid, I guess, you know, I was definitely into comic books and horror mm-hmm. and old horror movies and um reading you know horror books of stephen king and hp lovecraft and yeah. stuff uh, <laughs> love that you know stuff. that kind of influenced me early on and you know watching 
the 80s horror movies, Evil Dead, Demons, From Beyond, Reanimator, all that (laughs) stuff I was into. Excellent. Um, And then I wanted to go to art school, you know, I was going to go to Pear in Connecticut because that's where I'm from. And uh, my father reneged on me. So he was like, I'm not paying for art school because we were into something. I don't know. I got in trouble for spirit spray painting graffiti like in high school <laughs> and, uh, for whatever reason he was real cheap um he didn't <laughs> want to pay for it which looking back I, I think it was like five grand a year back then wow that's amazing like, <laughs> and that was like a lot like five grand a year you know i don't want to get in debt five grand like it's not <laughs> even that much when you look at it nothing so, compared to nowadays man yep totally so whatever i went to Central Connecticut State for graphic design. And they had this really good, like an art building that was away from the campus. And it was it was pretty well known for graphic design and art. I did that. Then I did go back to Pear for some illustration classes and um, you know, took classes around because I, I didn't I felt art school, I, I felt central was okay, but didn't really have the illustration stuff that I wanted. Mm-hmm. So I took classes all over Connecticut at little art schools and and uh from artists and and learned a lot you know um just myself i guess you know working with other artists who were into comics at the time Mm, cool um but it was fun i mean art art school was kind of fun yeah i i i definitely kind of wish i had um gone myself because it seems like it'd be really fun i guess it depends what the art school is and how the teachers were and all that yeah, I heard uh, like later on, I took classes at SVA in New York mm-hmm. and Art Students League was like later, late 90s, early 2000s. And that was really fun. I could see how, wow, if I was like in college going here, it would have been, you know, really awesome. But I think SVA was even more expensive. Then it might have been like seven grand a year. <laughs> it's still nothing. <laughs> it's still like not much, but it was, it was like. Compare, I mean, what does it cost nowadays to go to art school? It's, it's crazy, right? 20 to 50,000 a year. Right. That's insane, man. Crazy. Depending on the school and stuff. Right. But that's cool. You went and you kind of, you definitely seem like a, a self-starter kind of guy. You went and found any classes you could find and just studied with different artists and just learned on your own as much as you could too. Right. Yeah. Kind of then. I mean, now with the YouTube and everything, uh, you could learn a lot more And, and definitely being out in LA when I came out here, I found like all these amazing classes. Like I moved out 2002 mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh my God, you could take classes from like real animators and people <laughs> that work for Disney and DreamWorks and, <laughs> and Sony. I'm like, I could, I could meet these guys. Like it was awesome. Like in Connecticut, you could only really take classes from academics. You know, they right. really didn't have that much of a, of a background in illustration SVA was different. You could take classes from Ralph Bakshi, Bill Plimpton, um, wow. Marshall Ayersman taught there, and you could take classes from a lot of New York illustrators. You know, I didn't really go there till later, but in Connecticut, you were limited to like academics, I felt. And as I was graduating, I was like, oh, I, I really wish I could have taken classes with, um, you know, uh, artists that were working in the field or had experience in illustration or comics or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I came out here, I was still taking classes and it was just great to meet people that worked in the business. I thought that was, that was amazing. Um, yeah. Plus, yeah, you, after, <clears throat> plus you get, you know, practical information about 
getting in the business and working in the business when you take classes from guys like that, guys and girls like that. You absolutely do. You absolutely do. And then some of my classes that I took here, you know, after class, you'd be like, Hey man, is there any uh, jobs over there? Warner Brothers?" <laughs> and they'd give you uh, <laughs> they'd be like, yeah, sure. Actually we're looking for background guys. Here's a name. I'm like, Holy shit. And you, and you'd, you'd contact people and I did get work that way. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. That's part of those, it. It's like yeah. networking too, you know? Um, <clears throat> wow. That's pretty cool. So uh, how did you, how did you end up coming out here to LA? Did you have a place to stay? Did you, you know. Yeah. So after, well, I guess like after, well, I was still in college. Oh, we'll, we'll just go through this little history a little bit. I, I really wanted to do comics. Like I was into definitely horror comics, Bernie Wrights. And yeah. I was into Tales from the Crypt. I was into all the DC stuff, House of Mystery, Eerie Creepy. I was reading Heavy Metal. Yeah. Like, the best. I just want to be, a, I just want to be a comic book artist. <laughs> yeah. That's what I wanted to do. And I wasn't that good. And I would send out all these, you know, submissions to DC, Marvel and Dark Horse, it was just rejection after rejection after rejection. I could never get in. And uh, I went to this uh, comic convention. It was it was a horror convention up in Albany. It was Fanico, I think it was called, or Fantagore, or yeah. something like that. And the Cry for Dawn guys were there, Joe Lindsner and Joe Monks. And mm-hmm. and and they were selling their Cry for Dawn book, which is a horror anthology. And, and I was like, oh, this is great. I'm like, how would you guys get published? And, and they're like, get published. They're like, we published this. I'm like, you publish it. What do you mean? They're like, we just got some money and put together a book and went to the printer and, and sold it through distributors. I'm like, you could do that. And they're <laughs> like, yeah, you just self-publish. I'm like, I'm like, and I saw the the writing on the wall. Like, this is my, this is how I could do it. I don't need to get rejected all the time. I could just publish my own book. Right. So yeah, I was still in college. I think I was like 19 and I went home and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, we're going to self-publish. We're going to self-publish. Like, this is how we do it. Like, you just get our stuff out there. And everyone knew that that's how the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles guys did it, right? Kevin Eastman, they just self-published that. And look how huge that went. Right. Um, And they were from Connecticut, Massachusetts. So there was like a lot of talk about them and what they did. Um, So we went home and I I knew Al Columbia and I were friends at the time because he was from Connecticut. My friend Scott DeAngelis, uh, Mike Bliss, he had the money because he had a successful exterminator business. We're like, let's all just put our comics together and and publish. So we got connections with Diamond, Capital City. There was like not just Diamond, but there was like five or six distributors back then, Friendly Franks, and you sent them a cover and a a mock-up of your book. They send it to the stores. And a few months later we got, um, orders. We're like, we got orders for a book, like 5,000 orders at the time. Wow. That's amazing. And, and, and we were psyched, but everyone's like, Oh, that's low. You should be getting like 30,000. Really? It was different. (laughs) There's a black and white boom, you know, crow Faust cry for dawn. Um, all those black and white indie books, early nineties, it was a huge boom. And they're like, man, you, and Faust was selling like 50,000 at the time. So even wow. though we were psyched, everyone was like, Oh, that's, that's low. That's low. You know, but, but we were, we were psyched. So we put out like four issues of this book called from beyond, which is basically a horror anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, and me, Scott, Al Columbia and Mike, we wrote and drew all the stories. You could still find them on eBay and stuff. Um, but that was my first foray into kind of drawing comics and self-publishing and just getting the stuff out there. And from that time on, I just thought, 
I'm going to just kind of be a do it yourself kind of person. Like there's no need to, you know, submit and get rejected and submit. Everything is there for you to publish yourself and you could still do it. It's a little bit more difficult. Diamond doesn't just take everyone, but now mm-hmm. with like online and publish on demand and, and, um, you know, Kindle and Kindle, um, direct, um, Kindle publishing. I mean, you could just be to the world in a, in a second, you know, which was interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's like, maybe, maybe the tools the, out there that are out there today are amazing. Yeah. Maybe the distribution isn't as, as from traditional sources, isn't as wide, but, uh, uh, creating the thing is, more accessible and affordable than ever it's just a, it's just a matter of promoting it but then you have the web so if you build your fan base up you know there you go yeah and you can you can use facebook facebook marketing but i'm really impressed with like some of these web comics guys that put out web comics and have followers of like uh, hundreds of thousands or millions you would you would be lucky today to sell an independent comic through diamond and get like 3000 orders. Wow. Yeah. These guys have millions of readers. So the numbers are just staggering what you could do with web comics, giving it away for free. You know, it's just, that's really the way you want to go. I think if you're going to do comics. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So how, when you, you came out to LA, you made the decision to come out to LA and, uh, I'm curious about, I like the stories about people coming to LA with like no money and nowhere to stay. (laughs) Did you have like some money and a place to stay or did you kind of come? Yeah, kind of. Well, I I kind of wanted to be like Kato Kalin. Like I heard he lived in a guest house of like a celebrity. (laughs) You're the only only person I've ever heard say that. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, guest house, celebrity, Beverly Hills. I'm like, that's what I want. I want to live in a guest house. (laughs) And I came out here and all I looked for was like, I want the guest house. I want the guest house. So I found one in Valley Village. And it was, it wasn't a celebrity. It was this old guy, Vincent, who was my landlord, but it was still cool. I felt like I had a little more privacy than being in an apartment, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, it was definitely not glamorous. Um, But yeah, after, I guess after struggling in comic books, I could knew I couldn't make a living. I worked in animation at this company in Connecticut for a little bit, but I got laid off there, moved to New York took classes more art students league SVA and stuff and tried to make it there. And then nine 11 went down. Oh, right. Yeah. So it was crazy in New York. And I had some friends that were moving out to LA to like work in animation. And they're like, there's work out here. They were working at Spumco for John K and, and, you know, I was kind of sick of the cold weather in Connecticut. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to move to LA. I'm going to get a job in storyboarding or or animation or character design or something. I needed steady work. And, you know, of course I was, I was always into, you know, growing up reading juxtapose and into pop surrealism. And I knew that La Luz was there and how that started. I'm like, there's there, everything is calling me to LA, like the art scene. I could do fine art. I could do work in animation. Maybe I could work in movies the, this is the place to be. Yeah. You know, and you definitely so moved out. Yeah. I got in that guest house <laughs> and I, and I had my portfolio from animation. I started showing it around and, and, and amazingly people were like, Oh my God, like, yeah, you're not, you're not good enough. I'm like, what? But I, I got all this stuff on comics and, and storyboards and stuff. They're like, yeah, you, you've got to get your skills up. I'm like, 
my skills up. Like I couldn't believe it. Like after all this time, like the, the competition and the people that like grew up in animation and went to, um, you know, Cal arts and grew up like taking these classes were so much better than me. So immediately, yeah, I went back to school um what was there the animation uh i forget a bunch of the schools i went to like um the animation um i think concept design academy wasn't there yet anyway i took a bunch of classes at local animation schools got my portfolio up met people in those classes and then i started working so mm. i started background design and eventually moved to storyboard because there was more storyboard jobs than uh, any other job, like if a production has, you know, a character designer, a couple background guys, there's always like 15 storyboard guys. So that's kind of why I picked it. Plus it was a little more fun to do boards. Like you're kind of directing, you're kind of doing filmmaking, you know? So it, it, it appealed to me. Yeah, yeah. I was curious about that because I've never done, I don't think I've ever done storyboarding professionally, maybe something here and there that was related to a makeup effect or something, but I was curious about that in storyboarding. I mean, do they, does, does the director or the art director, whoever's kind of in charge of you, do they, do they tell you the, uh, here's basically what I want for the setup and kind of the angle of the camera, or are they just like read the scene from the script and then come up with something? Um, you know, it's, it's really all different. Certain directors are very particular about what they want and they'll do little thumbnails and they'll want it exactly a certain way. That's gotta you know be, I mean? that's gotta be easier when it's like kind Sometimes, of, but it takes away the creativity because you might see a scene a certain way and you want to go off on it right. and you're kind of, you're kind of held back by that. Mm -hmm. um, some directors are just like go off you know do some stuff and then they just want to make a little tweak here and there um Interesting. when i work in when i work in live action a lot of times sometimes um the director will just be like just just board something out or before you even talk to the director sometimes you're working with the visual effects guy and he's like we don't have a director yet but just you know get these scenes done so we have something to talk about oh wow so just kind of go and rough out the scene and you know you give the low angle the high angle you make it all work and and then the director might come in and tweak a little bit because he likes it or he might be like ah oh, no this i want it this way and right. then he throws the whole thing out <laughs> and then you start from scratch like it could work that way too um in animation it's a little different like if you're at the beginning of a feature when there's no there might not be a script or a story you have free reign to kind of go off and do what you want and actually throw in story beats and script and character development but as you get closer and closer to the end time where you have to go to animation and the script comes together you might be more working from script pages at that point right um, and in tv i find tv animation it's very much you have the script you're just told to like go and you work with the director to kind of figure out the pacing and usually there's a style that's set up for the show like i just worked on um solar opposites which is the new show from the rick and morty creators mm-hmm and the kind of show was basically similar to how Rick and Morty is set up with a few changes. So we kind of studied Rick and Morty. We knew what they liked. We knew the style. So it was a little easier to kind of just kind of mimic that with some longer shots. They wanted some longer shots in there. And, you know, I found it 
very cool that I was able to like add some story beats in there that the writers really liked. So it was fun to do that where I, when I worked on Bob's Burgers, it was very much a writer driven show and they didn't really want you to like add, you know, jokes or gags or story beats. They were more like, we just want you to do the blocking and they were in charge of the story and the gags. Right. Yeah. So it's all, it's really all different, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I should have, should have known. Um, cause that's, that's how it is with makeup effects and creature design as well. It's like, sometimes they have a specific thing they want. Other times it's like, all they'll give you is, uh, it's a werewolf and then you yeah, go, right. you go from there, you know, and then you get a play, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. So do, what, which medium do you prefer like live action or animation what's the most fun um does it matter yeah i think there there are certain things about animation where it's where you get to pose stuff out and you get to like get a bit of dialogue and act Mm -hmm. out the character but in animation really there's a lot more drawing involved a lot more beats of acting and posing and doing stuff that you don't really need to do in live action because live action, the actors do all the acting. So they just need you to do like a basic camera setup. And a lot of times for the dialogue scenes, that's not really what they need you for in live action. A lot of it is for the, the special effects, the monsters, the creatures, they need to see those boards beforehand so they could either send it out for a special effects bid or just count how many shots have visual effects, how many are practical effects what is a CGI effect? And then what scene has, oh, this is a smoke effect. This is a creature and there's going to be gore and there's going to be a, a, a green screen in the background. Like they need to count that stuff out right. for the budget. So a lot of times you're doing kind of a previs and a storyboard at the same time. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Previs is something I remember when I was getting into um, computer animation in the late nineties, Previs was like a big thing, doing previs in 3D, you know, and I and I always thought that seemed like it'd be a really fun, um, a fun job to do animatics and stuff because you're kind of setting scenes up and moving, doing camera moves and stuff like that. But the whole thing actually, it sounds uh, a lot more like a lot more fun than I imagined. Storyboarding, there's a lot to it. Apparently, I didn't realize. Yeah, it's fun. I, I like it because you usually work with the director and you do get to tell the story. You know, you get to call the shots. And a lot of times you'll it's a storyboard guy calling the shots, calling the angles, calling the cuts. And the director will just come in and like approve it. He'll be like, yeah, yeah, I like that. That's all working. And just have a note here and there, you know. Um, right. And then I do use Storyboard Pro to build animatics, which a lot of the live action directors love. I mean, that's what I do in animation. Uh huh. What's Storyboard Pro? Uh, Storyboard Pro is a is a program by Toon Boom that it's kind of like it has a timeline, so it works like After Effects. So it's an, it's animate an, they're kind of animated, so it's like an animatic sort of or yeah, it's it like works like it's like After Effects and Premiere with Photoshop layers. Oh, that right? sounds so it's like Photoshop meets After Effects or Premiere, where you can create a timeline, but you have a layered file to work in. So you can just draw your panels just like Photoshop, but you're in a timeline, you know, and you can add sound effects and sound and music and everything. And, you know, live action guys are usually used to working from just boards that they look at. Uh But more and more, you'll see it with the Marvel movies. 
they make full animatics. And in Storyboard Pro, if you could deliver that, they love to just sit there and watch an animatic and I see bet. how it plays out, the timing. And then Storyboard Pro also with one button, you can export, a, you know, like a PDF of the printed board. So you could you have that too at the same time to bring to set to show everybody like, oh, these are the shots. Everybody kind of knows what page you're on, you know. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Kind of works for, yeah, it kind of has two functions. So a lot of people uh, really like it. Yeah, um, it sounds like uh, a really amazing tool i didn't know existed <laughs> yeah and that's for like when you're talking about previs like previs is still done but sometimes the storyboard is like the pre previs like we'll board it right. out give them an animatic and then that they'll like the director approves that then that goes to 3d and then they do it all up in 3d based on our animatic wow if there's a budget for that they'll they'll do it that way right right that's really interesting. Um, it, this is kind of a personal question, but does it pay? Does storyboarding pay well? Yeah, like the the rates are pretty much um, available for you to look at. So, like in animation, I think you can start if it's uh, like like animation and TV. I think you could get anywhere from eighteen hundred to twenty five hundred a week. Wow. Um, and that's with union benefits, and they pay for you know money goes into pension and stuff, and. Right. But then there's that new media clause that came in where, like, if it's streaming, they could pay a little lower. And I think those, maybe it's 1600 I think it's going up. Now everybody's pissed because new media meant, like, web. Right. But Netflix has so much money that pe the people in the union are saying, Netflix has so much money, they could afford to pay us our regular rate. So they're trying to get rid of what classifies new media. Um, right. If you're working in storyboarding for feature you could make anywhere from two grand to i've known people making 3600 a week holy shit <laughs> i had no idea head, head of story could make anywhere from four to five thousand a week if you if you have the credits like pixar disney and you and you can just negotiate like hey i'm worth it and you know these these movies are budgeted 100 120 million <laughs> Right. Five grand a week's nothing to right. those guys, you know? Yeah, and that's such um, an important it seems like that's such an important part of the process too, because you're you're seeing the film beforehand to know that all the scenes are gonna work and the timing's gonna work. I mean, it's I don't know. It seems to me like that would be a very, very important part of the uh equation to making a successful film. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, it's I really important. It totally is. And and when you look at Pixar films, uh DreamWorks, those those movies go through a year, maybe more, two years, three years of building an animatic, reworking it, get the, getting the story to work, looking at the story, getting the cuts right before it even goes to animation. Mm. You have to get that animatic working before you spend all the money on animation. Once the story's right, then it's just like, you know, then you add those final touches of the backgrounds and the story and the, the finessing of like the the facial features in the animation. I mean, that's a whole part of it too. But if you don't have that animatic working, uh, there's no sense in going to animation. So yeah, those people are very valuable yeah. to the process. <clears throat> wow. This is fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, so do, have you, uh, do you ever get to design like characters and creatures within kind of your day job of the uh, storyboarding or animatics do they ever let you get creative with like 
character design or anything? Because I know you've you've got your own comic books, you yeah. self publish, yeah. you do your own fine art. You're definitely like yeah. a, a character guy, you know. So do you ever get a chance to flex those muscles in your in that job? Right. When I worked on I worked on Insidious Four with Adam Robitel. That oh, was wow. much a storyboard gig. They had some other people doing the creature design. I messed with it a little bit, but he kind of had this creature design guy that did very realistic stuff do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked on Truth or Dare, which was another horror movie. Um, and that was pretty much, there was no creatures there. So that was pretty much just storyboard stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I'm working on now, I don't know what if I can say the title if I'm allowed to talk about it, but let's just say you can look it up online. It's <laughs> uh, it's HBO. It's about Lovecraft. Um, there's a book. It was based on a book. And uh, if you look up J.J. Uh, Abrams and Lovecraft and HBO, it'll come up. You okay. can see what the, pro- what the project is. Um, That's cool. Because I'm in, I'm in two unions. Like I'm in the 839, which is the Animation Guild. And I'm also in the uh, Art Directors Guild, which is the local 800. Wow. In the 800, I'm in, classified as an illustrator. So I could really do character design, creature design, environment design, and storyboards. I wouldn't, I'm, I'm, I'm really more of a storyboard guy than a, than a creature design, but I did do, I mean, I can do creature mm-hmm. design and character I've, design and stuff. I've seen it, <laughs> but, but I do it in a little more of a comic book style where right. it's yeah, yeah. outline and color, which is fine for some people. That's you know. cool. That sounds like an amazing project, man. Anything oh, H.P. Lovecraft and J.J. It's Abrams. Gonna be, it's like, going to be great. It's yeah. going to be really sick. Like you can read the book and um, see what it's all about. So it's it's very cool. cool. But I'm glad that yeah, Lovecraft is delving in, or HBO is delving into Lovecraft. Like yeah, hasn't been a show about Lovecraft since like remember that show in the '90s? Like uh, Cast a Deadly Spell. Cast a Deadly Spell. <laughs> I just you know <laughs> uh, the shop I was at, Alterian Studios. We worked on that. I don't oh, think. Really? Yeah, I don't think I actually did any of the effects, but everybody, because it's like we had multiple shows at once. Yeah. But um, uh, Bruce Fuller was working on oh. on that show. Bruce Balding Fuller, who also was in the comics for a while before he That's got into awesome. makeup effects. But um, I recently just rewatched that oh, because yeah? because I saw it when it first came out in the night, like it was early nineties or something. Yeah. I think. and um, I was kind of like, uh, this is I, you know, I was thinking it was going to be more like hardcore Lovecraft horror. And it was kind of funny. And I yeah, watched it. Some humor to it. Yeah. And I watched it recently and I really liked it. I was like, yeah, it's, really? it's like a, yeah, it's like a whole alternate reality of like a, like a, a, a world where everybody's knows magic and like the gangsters are all like, they'll do like little like magic jabs at each other and like make, make things go in their face and just to fuck with each other. Cause they can yeah. all do magic. It's really yeah. pretty cool. It's it's totally still, like if monsters were real and magic was real and everybody accepted that right. there were all sorts of monsters and stuff. Yeah, totally. Where, yeah. where did you watch that? Where can we see that? It's on HBO. Uh, okay. I, I got HBO now, so it's like okay. you can stream it's it. Streaming. Oh, I'll have to go back and check that out. Yeah, it's worth yeah. it. It's worth it. Yeah, there was a there was a there was like um there was like a rush of Lovecraft stuff in the nineties. Remember what well, was eighties? I guess you had you had Re- a reanimator from beyond. From beyond. And then I think you had Necronomicon. That might have been late 80s. There was one I worked on, this really bad one. I think, well, I, I never saw it, so I can't say, but it was called Pulse Pounders. Uh huh. Which was, it was a Charlie Band film. And um, it was like a three part 
uh, Lovecraft adaption, like three different stories, super low budget. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. And then, and then, then they did Dagon. Remember? I think Stuart Gordon did Dagon. Yeah. I never saw that. I never and saw then there that. was those guys, it was in the two thousands. Those guys that did all those shorts, like they adapted call of Cthulhu, but they mm-hmm. really did it. Um, uh, like really just like the way Lovecraft wrote it. I forget. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a there was guys that were doing a bunch of Lovecraft adaptions as short films. I have to look them up, but they did some amazing stuff. So wow, huh. yeah, I'm gonna have to see that. To see. I, yeah. I I worked with uh, Stuart Gordon in the. Uh, I went to Italy, and my first big or my first kind of job where I went on set. I was 18, and they flew me to Italy, and I was working on set. Uh, and uh, I think Stuart Gordon was doing. He was doing one of the one of the uh, Pulse Pounder episodes, and he oh. was so fucking cool. Stuart Gordon's awesome, man. He's such a nice guy. Totally, awesome. totally into horror. Like he's like one of us. You know, he's not just doing it for a paycheck. He's totally was into it. Yeah, right. You know? right. And it shows. It shows uh, from his movies too, because Reanimator's yeah, right. great, and uh, From Beyond is great. Yeah, you know? I love From Beyond. Is like. Um... I, I, one of my favorite movies, I would say for horror. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not like there, there's, there's a comic aspect to it. Like, like I wouldn't say it's as scary as all his like stuff is kind of like that, but from beyond the reanimator, there's something about those movies that are so great. Yeah. They're, I, I like the humor. I'm not, I'm not a comedy horror guy usually, but I, 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 I enjoyed the way that, um, reanimator and from beyond, uh, in, mixed the horror in because it's like it was dark enough and fucked up and weird enough yeah you know but also kind of dark sense of humor so um yeah those are great movies i just watched reanimator the other day my oh you did yeah my son then there was was bride of reanimator and i never uh, saw that one i don't think then was there there was three of them there was bride and then was it return i don't i don't know curse of reanimator there was three (laughs) of them yeah, you got to see all of them, man. You I'll watch them. I I watched my my There's nothing kid. better than the original, but you know, my kid was over. He came over for the day, and he was hanging hanging around, and um, he was like, "Okay, what can I watch?" He just wanted to chill and watch a movie on the couch, and uh, he put on Reanimator, and I was like, "Yeah, this is great, man! Yeah, great, it was right? really fun, really fun." Oh yeah, so fun movie. these guys that these guys that did those Lovecraft ones, I think they're H. PLHS motion pictures mm-hmm. and they did Call of Cthulhu, Whisper in the Darkness. They did a bunch of them as short films. Um you can look them up, but they're okay. they're actually really good. Really, really that's, that, that's that's great because you know, as much as I love Reanimator and From Beyond, they you know, they were Stuart Gordon's vision more than they were Lovecraft's visions, I felt. Sure. And it's yeah. like I'm still kind of waiting for the authentic Lovecraft movie that Guillermo probably would have done with um, the, the mountain, mountains, mountains, mountains yeah, of madness. Right, right, which, totally. which I, I worked on, I worked on the, uh, some of the pitch artwork. Oh, wow. That. Really? Yeah. And it would have been, uh, Oh my God. The designs we did were so uh, fucking cool, man. It was, it's such a tragedy that, 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 that didn't happen. Hopefully it'll happen now that he's got an Oscar, you know? Yeah, that would be, that would be great. Yeah. I would love to see his take on a HP Lovecraft. It would, I read the script; it was amazing. The effects would have uh, everything was just like 
this is what we've been waiting for forever. You know, finally yeah, someone's totally. going to get it right, you know, but yeah, I couldn't believe, uh, couldn't believe they didn't, they didn't go for that. It's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. That's right. I got to meet Tom Cruise. Then he came by the shop. <laughs> he was going to be in it. Yeah. He was oh, wow. even, he was going to be in it. He was actually super cool. I was, I was so surprised. Yeah, he was like right. such a nice guy. Um, yeah, I think if anyone's going to do Lovecraft right, it would have been uh, Guillermo. You for know? sure, yeah. But he, I think he wanted a hundred million to do mm-hmm. it, and people didn't want to put up that much money for uh, for an R rating. He yeah, wouldn't, he wouldn't it's go a, down on the on the rating. Yeah, right, right. Oh well, maybe it could be series Netflix. You know, maybe that that it, would work better as a series. You it's know? it's got to happen now that he's got a, a an Oscar. It's got to yeah. happen. It's got to happen. Sure. Anyway, so um, how did you? This is I'm. I, I saw that you were in, in the union. Now I have a story about almost getting in the animators' union. I think it was. I, I went and worked at Warner Brothers Animation after right. uh, I got laid off from Rick Baker's after uh-huh. his shop closed down. Uh, my friend was there, Mitch Devane. He was there doing uh, maquettes, and they needed some Photoshop artists to do basically mm-hmm. like. Um, kind of storyboards, but like rendered storyboards for a presentation, like uh-huh. hand painted kind of stuff in Photoshop. Right. And it was this chicken movie. <laughs> right, it was really dumb. It was like a we used to, used to refer to it as the chicken movie. And um, oh man, it, it was it was such a different environment than I was used to because it was like you know you could tell there was a lot of money there so you go in i we're, i'm used to working in kind of you know rick's rick's shop spectral motion those are decent shops right but um still it's like it's not formal it's like a messy kind of environment to work in it's like an art studio you know right, like right, s- right. plaster and sculpted clay right. and stuff like that and this environment was like really nice offices Right. You know, with little refrigerators for little areas and, you know, free shit to eat and stuff like it was, it was amazing. I was like, damn. And the money was really amazing. And I was like, wow, this is kind of incredible. All air conditioned. I mean, I'm used to working in places where it's like, oh, we can't have the air conditioner on right now. Or you have to work outside to paint this thing in the 105 degree heat. And because, you know, the fumes, urethane benzene and fiberglass dust xylog exactly in a silk screen shop i had xyla i would go to the bathroom and i'd smell in my pee i'd smell xyla i'm like oh my God. i didn't even i didn't drink it i didn't even touch it That's it seeped through my skin and now i'm peeing it out what the scary fuck? man it's Xylol, crazy man. crazy Holy yeah shit. but anyway um so that was like you know you kind of I couldn't get away with dressing like a total slob there too. I had to kind of like clean up a little bit because it was like everyone was there was, you know, at least kind of, you know, not didn't have like latex all over their pants. So anyway, I worked on that for a while and, um, the supervisor who, who hired me was really great. He was, he was really awesome guy, John Ferret, I believe his name Uh was, but there was like a, uh, an executive guy above that was sort of approving everything, this like suit guy. And I forget his name. I probably wouldn't say it. So I don't get sued, but he said, he told me, he's like, yeah, we're going to get you in the animators union. I think it was, I don't remember. Yeah. The eight, three, nine. Yeah. And and he's like, yeah, we're going to get you in the animators union for sure. And 
totally promised me that. And then it didn't happen, didn't happen, didn't happen. Then I got laid off. And I remember talking to him on the phone after that about, I don't know what we were talking about, why I was even talking to him. But I was like, yeah, you're supposed to get me in the union. You said before the end of the show, you'd get me in the union. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I was, he just completely blew it off. Totally screwed me, man. I was really could, pissed about that. It's not really that hard to get into the 839. The 800 is the really hard one to get into. And the thing is, usually if you work on a show long enough, the union will just contact you because right. they want your they want your money. And it's good for you, too, because you get benefits and you could get pension money. How long were you on the show for? Um... I don't know. It was probably, I don't know. It might've only been a couple months, maybe. I think that's enough time. I think it was. Think that's why, need, that's why it came think, up because it was like, I think we need 30 days. Right. Right. That's why it came up because I, I had worked enough days. I believe it just, it was just lame that, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, I mean, a some, long some time of the, ago. And for anyone else, like nowadays, like any studio will, the union will contact you or they'll assist you in that, especially the big studios. But if it doesn't happen, you could always be proactive and just call the local 839 if they're right in NoHo and, and they'll help you get in. Just be like, hey, I'm on this show. It's union. How do I get in? Right. It's pretty easy. It's the 800 that like you can't work on an 800 show unless you're in the 800, but you can't get in the 800 unless you do 30 days on a union show. Right. It's like this 22. Yeah. Really kind of like SAG is, SAG is kind of like that too. Yeah. Cause I'm it in SAG. Oh, you're in SAG? Yeah. For puppeteering because we oh, go cool. on set and oh, that's awesome. wiggle the tentacles and that, yeah, that's, right. that's a performance technically. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was good. When, what movie was that for? Uh, I get residual checks still, not big ones, but for like Adam's Family Values oh, and yeah? uh, Ace Ventura when Nature Calls. That's awesome. Because we did a we made a, a big gorilla suit and I had a puppeteered yeah. the gorilla. Um, some You're puppeting the gorilla. Yeah, uh, Warriors of Virtue, uh, wow. all kinds of stuff. I That's worked on. Um, yeah, yeah, it was cool. It was great being in that union. Was great because I got health insurance until yeah. until they raised the amount of money you had to make to get health insurance. And then it was like, I never got it again. Cause I never, I, I wasn't working enough SAG projects to make the amount of money every year on a SAG project. Yeah. So right. They kind of, yeah, you got to work the hours or, or, or they kick you out or something. I'm, I'm uh, vested now actually. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Which cool. is cool, but I still don't get health insurance. Um, but whatever, but, um, are, uh, you, you like the, the union? Yeah, I mean, I'm in, I'm in both unions, so I, I don't mind. I mean, it was expensive to get into the 800. I think it was like 7,500. But um, you can make a lot more money working on 800 projects if you could get on like, you know, an X Men or Avengers or like Superman movie. The the rates are a lot higher. Um, so it works out. I mean, it's a cost of entry, and you know. Yeah. Like I said, I was having trouble um, making money in comic books. Like that was hard. I, I knew I had to do something to, uh, you know pay for my bills you know right. so this is what i chose and you know it's 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 worked out pretty good you know it's been difficult at times there, there's definitely some years like where you couldn't find work but uh we're in a good place right now i think good yeah it sounds like you're working on some cool projects 
Yeah, yeah, the horror stuff. Like I said, I worked on a few Blumhouse things. Yeah, I saw and, that. Uh, the animation, you know, I worked on. Oh, I worked on Guillermo del Toro's Three Below, which was like the Show Hunter spinoff. And oh, I was cool. at DreamWorks on the campus, and that was really fun. So, yeah, I've worked on some cool stuff, you know, definitely uh, uh, interesting. But, you know, there's still nothing like doing your own stuff. Like, you I know, know. <laughs> I know, but or you, like, you know what? You, you talking about all this stuff is making me go, man, that would be kind of fun to go back into the film business and get paid a regular paycheck and work in a nice environment. And, but well, then it's, it, 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 and you know, and it's like, you can, like, when you talk about the fine art stuff, like I was doing all this stuff, I was out here, it was like 2013. I was working on Bob's Burgers. I was work. I worked on Despicable Me Too. I worked on all this stuff and I'd go to all the galleries, like la luz and and copro and Corey helford and i'd see all these guys like on the walls and go to openings i'd be like look at all these guys doing all these paintings like like i i I'd say to myself like i'm 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 fucking up man i'm not doing enough like i'm not doing my artwork like this is this is fucked up like these guys really got their shit together they're they're showing and they're they're doing their own thing and all i'm doing is like doing these storyboards for other people right you know? right no matter what you're doing, you're always like, I wish I was doing yeah, that. Yeah, grass is always greener syndrome. So I think it was then that, and I had been submitting to La Luz for a while to try to get in there. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had said, okay, I'm going to go home. I'm going to like, now I'm going to focus on doing the fine art thing again. I think I have some time. I'm just going to like create a style that works for me and do that. So I started working more in the, black and white like fleischer-esque stuff with brains and it's kind of like fleischer meets horror meets david lynch or something like that and i submitted a bunch of stuff to matt for la luza palooza Mm -hmm. there were all these ufo paintings and he was like oh looks cool looks cool but uh you know change up the format you know it's a little too you know the same with all the ufo stuff just uh diversify the subject matter i'm like all right cool cool so i went home that weekend i'm like all right i'm gonna do this so i did a couple more paintings of like wolves and just diversified a little bit and he liked them. So then I was accepted to La Luz, uh, La Luz Palooza. Right. That was my first foray into like the gallery scene. And I had been rejected maybe three years prior doing these more f- colorful stuff. And when I toned down the color, I got in, Matt liked them. And, um, those two pieces sold, which is always good at a group show. I kept the kind of the price down. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. he invited me to like uh, a group show that July, like he picks people from the Palooza. And after that happened, then other galleries started calling me, Hey, we saw your stuff at La Luz. And then they wanted to show me. And then I started showing at phone booth, dark art emporium, oh, cool. Um, cast contemporary arch enemy art so i think lalu's definitely opened up the door for me and they do for a lot of people a lot of people get started there and if it wasn't for that you know lalu's a palooza show where they it's an open call a lot of galleries don't even take submissions so right right they were great they were great in opening the door for that for me you know yeah matt's a cool guy yeah for sure that's a that's yeah, it's it's you know the gallery scene is is really just like any other kind of uh job as far as how you get in there. It's like networking, going to shows, submitting over and over and over, keep bugging yep. them and you yep. know make connections and once you get in 
then it's like you're in, but then you have to sell a piece. Once you sell a piece, then it's like, oh, we can make some money from this. So right. then it's like they start really, you know, asking you to come in. So it's, you know, it has to come down to that because that's sure. how they that's how they keep the doors open. So sure. And for me, I mean, I find it hard. Like sometimes I'll sell, sometimes you won't. And if you don't sell for a gallery, I always kind of feel bad. You're like, oh man, is it, is it my fault? You know, did did uh, did I not do the work? Did the people not like it as much? So I mean, it's tough. Like I, I would find it hard, I think, to try to make a living just from selling art. I mean, I would, I would love to be in that position. Trust me, that would be awesome. But yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. You know, I, I, feel. I couldn't, it's really difficult. I mean, we talk about this all the time on the show, sure. but, um, it's, it's not, uh, uh, I couldn't make a living just doing gallery shows. No way. That's not, right. that's barely, I barely make anything from gallery shows. I make right. all, all my money from print sales and, you know, sculpture sales and stuff that I'm selling myself directly to my audience from my website. That's yeah, that's where right. most of the money comes for me, you know, and now the Patreon too is helping a lot. Yeah, sure. You know, so it's like, you, if you're going to be a fine artist nowadays, especially uh, an independent, you have to diversify and, and kind of figure out all these different um, income streams, they call it. You know? Yeah, you have to you have to put your stuff on merch or have prints, yep. t-shirts. I'm starting to get on Amazon merch and Teespring and Spreadshirt and all that stuff. I'm I'm putting my my stuff up there because yeah, you need some kind of ancillary income stream. Um, if you can do that and you can get that going, then you can like say, hey, maybe I don't need to take on all this freelance. I could just work on more paintings. Yeah, sell painting through your website, do a gallery show. You know, I've got my work up on Saatchi Art. I sell through there once in a while. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of ways you can make money. I mean, unless you could do it, like if you could do one gallery show a year and make 150000 let's say that's your cut because let's say you sold 300000 worth of art and then you get half of that because the gallery takes and you get one fifty, then you could say, huh, I could... Right. But there's, but there's not that many artists I think that are at that level, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a grind, man. It's a grind. <laughs> I'm, I'm still, I'm determined to make it work though. I'm, I'm, yeah, I no, mean, I've I'm been not, making it work this, this long. I think you're, but. and I think you're someone that all of us look up to, to be like, wow, Chet does shows. He curates shows. He does you know, conventions and there's always people around your booth at conventions. And then you do, you know, small paintings and you do color studies and yet you sell them all the time. Like you're always selling and shipping and selling. And I mean, it's great. Yeah. It's uh, I'm, I'm making it work. It making it work. It's, it's just a matter of, um, making it a little more comfortable, a little less, a little, a little less work. It would be nice. You know, that's, that's, you know, a little more money, a little less work, and I'd be yeah, but a, I mean, a, a lot happier. <laughs> making it work as an artist is 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 all of the above, right? It's not just doing one gallery show a year. It has yeah, to be. Yeah. You're selling your sketches. You're selling your studies. You're putting your stuff on T-shirts. You're selling prints or limited run prints. You're making appearances at conventions. Maybe yeah. a commission or two. If you could do an illustration that fits your style for a cover of a, of a book. Right. Yeah. That could you know, like you don't do, you don't do covers for, um, horror, uh, uh, books or you're not in touch with any I just, publishers of horror. I don't really know any 
to be mm-hmm. honest. I mean, I did a friend of mine, Chris Witherspoon, was doing a Kickstarter to um to create a, a comic called Twilight Hotel. Uh-huh. Um, but he didn't <clears throat> it didn't reach his its goal, but I think they're gonna still try and move forward with that. And I did uh, a cover for that, which is a, a painting, which is pretty cool. So I mean I could definitely do it. It's just you know, that seems like the I never I'm not I'm not connected with like the toy world really. Um a, a little bit more in the in the toy world, but uh I'm not connected with the comics industry. Right. Uh the, the the gaming industry, like video games, that's a whole foreign world to me that I could probably be making a living doing if I wanted to, and if I pursued it. Um, you know, magic the gathering and all that shit you know dungeons and dragons and stuff like that type of stuff are also ways i could be doing illustration work but sure it's it's like i've got this this uh this machine that is my my art business and it's like it's taken so long to get it rolling and it's just like it's got all this momentum going and so i kind of have to keep keep going with that so to even to take a, a time off to do a job like that would be difficult for me, especially now I have the podcast as well. It's like, that's something one once a week I got to do for sure, you know, on top of everything else. But, you know, you gotta, that's, that's another, you know, doing stuff, even curating shows. Like, it's not like I'm I'm making a bunch of money from curating shows, but it's like keeping my name out there in the community as well, you know, And, and being able to do make, cool art shows is just fun and cool for the artist, but um it's it's a it's a way to to you know keep pushing your brand i guess they would say you know just keep your name out in the consciousness of buyers and stuff so same right, same with right. the podcast you know yeah right right so you got to do yeah, all so, that stuff yeah like even like if you don't have time to um do a do a uh a, a new original painting, like I would think licensing some of your previous work to a horror publisher would be a way to generate income. Yeah. But right? it's just such a, I don't even licensing is a whole <laughs> other yeah, weird right, secret right. thing that I don't know right. much about, you know, Sure. most, I, most of the things like that I haven't done are not because I don't want to, but they're probably because I just don't know anybody or know how I would, wouldn't even know how I'm kind of doing, what I know how to do. And, yeah, right. And working with what I've got. So for sure. Uh your stuff would be great on t-shirts. Your fine art stuff for sure. You know, those wolf paintings with the brains and the yeah. slices and all that would actually look really good on shirts, I think. Yeah. I mean I'm putting them out there. It's all POD. Like my stuff is not not everything, but it's up on Amazon merch. It's up on Teespring. It's on some of it's on Spreadshirt. And um I get a couple sales, but like, it's not like you got to bring your fans, I yeah. think to that, to expect that you're going to get discovered on those sites. Yeah. That's what I thought. Oh, I'm going right. to, everyone's going to come and get all these sales. There's so many artists on those sites that. Yeah. It's, it's you get lost. Not going to happen. But, same thing they're up there. Yeah. Same thing with Patreon is the same way. It's they, but they state like they state right off off the bat that they're not a discovery platform that you have to bring people right there you know so um but i've thought about doing releasing like all of my paintings as t-shirts through a print on demand service i think because that would be like i'd have 
hundreds of t-shirt designs you know there's so many designs i have painting yeah you haven't done that yet i haven't done it yet because i don't um i haven't i haven't gotten something from a print on demand that uh i guess meets the the quality that i want with it as far as the print quality because my stuff is like it's all you know very subtle gradations color you know it's not suited for printing which is um, kind of a bummer. And other other artist friends of mine do more like uh, uh, hard edged, hard color, you know, illustrator yeah, it, type it stuff. Works a lot better. Yeah, I it's think, way uh, easier to print. You might want to try getting some samples from Redbubble. Spread. You know what? We did and, that. Uh, Teespring and see what they are because yeah. they keep getting better. Yeah, that's true. That's true. One day it's going to get there. I, I think. Or, that, or maybe your your standards are so high, like you're looking for the quality of what it looks like on the painting, and you know you're just never going to get that type of print on a fabric. So maybe yeah, just kind of I've seen. I've I've stepped the lower. Yeah, lower my standards. <laughs> yeah, I guess in a way you don't have to lower them that much. You know, because I think people would love to wear your your work on a shirt. You know, yeah, I've got, I mean, I, I've got like six designs on a shirt, but it's like in order to, I have to order, what is it? How many, like, I forget what the minimum is. It's like, you know, it's basically about 70 pieces I have to order. They're all screen, oh, that, screen printed. That's if you do screen print, but yeah. the print on demand, I you know. know, I think they're, they're doing decals, but the decals, when they print them on there, it's a lot better quality. Like they, my friend got one of mine and it went through a bunch of washes already and it still looks great. So the quality is there and um, you could just get one. Like you don't need to order. Yeah. Yeah. I should try it. You're right. Well, it couldn't hurt just to do a couple images and see how it looks on the different services. Get get one. I think it'll be like 10 or 15 bucks. See what it looks like. And then once it's ready, you could just like put up one a week and see if your fans go for it or see if they, yeah, well, that's they true. start selling. You that's know? true. It's not a bad idea. You know, and then ask your fans what they think. Say, hey, is this quality up to your standards? Like, I wanted it higher, but do you guys like it? Is right. it is it going through the washes? Is it is it uh is it degenerating? You know, what do you think? You yeah, know? that's a good idea. You know, I have a friend who worked used to work at Redbubble, and he said that um there are people making like a hundred grand a year from print on demand shirts, but he said they're mostly like slogan shirts. Like I'm with stupid, <laughs> you know, those like, yeah, yeah, right. It's right. not, it's not artwork yeah. necessarily. It's like, you know, clever, you know, fuck Trump or whatever the shirt, yeah, right. you know, like simple. I have like a bunch of hilarious sayings <laughs> I post on Facebook. I could probably put those on shirts. Probably could. I, I mean, know. you could have, if print on demand is so easy you could have you know a bunch of different you know um uh, accounts under different brand names where it's like you know chet czar's humor brand and right. then there's you know <laughs> chet czar art you know but i think more for for us and artists it's more about yeah bringing our fans that we have to the work right you know i don't know how much of a discovery is out there although you never know but once you're on Amazon merch and stuff like that. They also have things where you can advertise. Uh, oh, really? Oh, really? You know, so you put your shirt up and then you can advertise to all the people on Amazon hmm. what you're selling. So that kind of. That's interesting. You can start promoting it through Amazon. You yeah, know? yeah. I Finding mean, people that like horror, dark art, monsters. You could target your ads just like Facebook 
to the Amazon buyers. Right, right. Yeah. I need I need a I need to hire a person just to deal with that. It's I like, know dude. <laughs> it's too much to do everything, right? It's, it's too much. Cr- it's crazy. It's crazy. I just figured, you know, I finally got my mojo with my Instagram back after um we had uh this dude Josh G come on the podcast. Right. Episode 110. You should listen to it. Where he um he he uh works in Silicon Valley uh-huh. and he knows about how how the Instagram algorithm works oh, yeah? for artists well, and he basically that. lays the whole Ten thing out. There. Yeah, um he he lays the whole thing out. Do this 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 and you'll grow wow. your, grow your following. Cool. And, and I'm does like, does he talk about? Does he want you to advertise? Like, no, he did. He's it's all without advertising, which is amazing. Wow. It's about how often you post, what hashtags you use. How you select the hashtags, what how your images look, it's awesome. it's and it's I'll and it, it. yeah, there. it worked for me because I you know I keep, I've said this story a million times on here, but I'm so impressed with the results. I was stuck. I have a lot. I have a big following on there on Instagram. That's all organic, and it's uh, I, I was stuck, but I was stuck at like a hundred seven thousand mm-hmm. um, after the the algorithm hit. You know, mm-hmm. I was cranking, man. I was getting like a thousand new followers yeah, a week. Right. It was insane. Like and then the algorithm kicked in and then it was nothing. And then I got stuck at 107 for like a year or two. And I just couldn't manage to bring it up at all. Like within two years, it was crazy. So then I started using his, um, doing his recommendations and I've gone, I'm up to, I just hit 115,000. That was like well, that's three, great. three or four months ago. We, that's awesome. Uh, and I started using it. So. Yeah, yeah, I think I think for artists like now, Instagram is such a powerful tool, and even Facebook too. I'm trying to study the it's called like tracking and conversion on Facebook, where you build a following and you look for people that like whatever you're doing, and then through them you let Facebook find similar people with similar likes and spending habits. Mm-hmm. You just try to find people that like to buy art or dark art or weird art or pop surrealism or whatever. And um, Facebook is a great tool for that. And if artists can learn how to use it, it takes some time. You can, you know, be an artist that is selling through Facebook and you can really make it work. A lot of artists have. And it's just like one part of the tool. You know, it's like Instagram, Facebook conventions, mm-hmm. gallery shows, all of it, POD. It all kind of works together where you're having multiple income streams. So if one goes away, you got this other one, right? Right, Yeah. And you also have to kind of, I don't know, like feel out which things are working better for you because there's not a one uh, size fits all approach for artists. It's really weird. Like every artist I know sells a lot of one thing and not that much of another. And then, you know, or for example, I know Gabe Leonard sells um, tons of uh, uh, canvas G clays and and I sell tons of paper prints, but he doesn't sell any paper prints, you know, and it's like, it's just different audiences. You would, you would think that it's all kind of like the same, but it's not really, it's not at all. So you have to, you know, it's hard. It's, it's extra hard because there's not, there's, there's, you know, general rules of thumb, but um there's not a one one way to do it that's going to work for everybody. You have to really 
tailor it to your own needs and really be aware of what's working for you and kind of analyze it and sure. kind of go. And where, do you, where do you sell most of your paintings? Do you just put them up on Facebook and Instagram? Like when you're not doing a gallery show, how do you sell the original works? Um, usually let's see when I'm not doing gallery shows, I am, let's see, I have, you know, I don't sell a lot of big finished pieces online. Mm-hmm. Once in a while I do, uh, but I mostly make money from painting these little five by seven studies. I see. You right. know, cause they're like around 400 bucks and that's, mm-hmm. and that's a price that a lot of people can afford. Right. And right. not the price point that works. Yeah. Not a lot of people can afford, you know, three grand for a painting or more. So um, I've never, I've, the funny thing is now when I do, uh, larger pieces like 11 by 14 and up 11 by 14 is kind of my small size for a finished piece Uh and uh those finished pieces i do now are usually from either commissions or a gallery show and if i get pieces back from a gallery show i just i um you know i've just never really pushed those that much but they do are, are they all for sale on your website like do you do a lot of website sales or is it more social media sales it's you know it's mostly social media sales but i i I put them in my web store and then i kind of direct people on social media like hey go over here if you want to buy it put i'll put it in my bio link you know right so you're actively updating your website all the time well no (laughs) my website is like four years old i haven't updated Uh in probably four years but i have it um Look, I go. I went there right now under, under construction. construction. What? The well, hell? no, I, I'm. Get that's that be- going, man. That's because like a month or two ago, I'm like, okay, I got to switch to uh, Squarespace. I'm gonna do a Squarespace website because it's really right. easy, looks really great. So I was able to transfer my domain over because I was using this uh, service called Homestead, which is fucking not good. <laughs> it's not. Right. Wor- it doesn't work for me the way I want it. Uh huh. It doesn't work that well for me. So Squarespace is great, but I just haven't had time to even populate the the website now. So it's like, okay, I got it parked over here. Um, I've got the coming soon sign. And mostly I just point people to my big cartel shop. And that is updated all the time with new merchandise. Yeah, I see, right, right, you know? right. I see, right. Yeah. E- even that though, I've outgrown big cartel. It doesn't have a lot of the features that I need anymore. It's, uh-huh. And uh, so now I'm going to use a Squarespace um e-commerce package that comes with the uh-huh. website and that is really like much better suited to what i need like you can create mm-hmm. create an account and log in and, and mm-hmm. store your payment info and stuff like that so yeah, right. cool yeah so i'm working on it it's just you know yeah. it's a matter of time i've got all these yeah. commissions i gotta get done i've got all these study totally. commissions i gotta get done stuff i got paid for already and it's like yeah uh, <laughs> you. i'm in the same boat yeah <laughs> So are you um, currently working uh, uh, like a day job project? Yeah. I mean, I'm working from home on this Lovecraft thing. Mm. Um, How often do you get to work at home? That's pretty great. That's like kind of the ideal thing for me. Sometimes on the live action stuff, believe it or not, they're they're in Atlanta or they're overseas or wherever they are. They don't really need you to be in house like they do for animation. You just work from home. You you meet with the director on Skype or Zoom. Mm -hmm. CineSync is another... CineSync is like you can call up and put your share screen and do little sketches and stuff like mm, that. That's cool. So yeah. you could just work from home. Um, 
That works pretty good. I did that for a movie called Priest. Uh huh. I did designs for that. Oh. It was like three months, and I was just working at home. It was great. So you still dabble? Would you still dabble in creature design? Yeah, definitely. It's the thing is, I don't go and look for work. You know, there's there's actually a shop, uh, Fractured Effects. It's like right down the street from my house, which is crazy. Uh I could walk to to work if I worked there, but I just haven't really pursued it because I'm just Mm -hmm. just like always treading water and just having to keep this uh, thing afloat and machine this Czar machine. (laughs) I got to keep the Czar machine going forward. So I I just haven't had time to uh, pursue it but every once in a while someone will you know maybe somebody i know from the industry like Guillermo. i worked on don't be afraid of the dark oh no way that's just coming out this weekend no this is oh scary scary stories to tell in the dark yeah that one actually i was supposed to work on but i but there was an issue with you know there was technical issues where i couldn't do it but um this is probably the union thing right no 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 it was it was more of a uh I don't want to get into it. It, it was nothing, <laughs> not not per- personal. It was just more about right, like right. the um, politics. No, <laughs> technical. No. Yeah, well, you just won't get into it. Maybe. Well, no. It was more. Uh, yeah, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> cool. But I'll, you worked on the I'll other one later. Don't 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 be, don't be afraid, don't be afraid of the dark. Uh, right. Remember yeah. that seventies scary tv movie of the week with those little cone-headed demons yeah the really creepy they did a remake of it a few years back and so he uh guillermo got in touch with me for that and i went i went i would go to his place he's got a studio at his at a bleak house for a design studio yeah right and so um i worked with him him and the director and keith thompson we we just sat around and did creature designs it's just that's awesome it's super fun and and it's actually you know creature design is it's fun and easy really if, yeah you know just because it's my comfort zone sure but I don't know why I don't do it more I don't know like I said I just I I'm I'm so determined to make it work this way mm-hmm. you know I could be making a lot more money if I focused on the film industry but I'm really like really focused on my own vision and i'm trying to get my book this book done this dystopia Mm -hmm. book and create this whole mythology of this world that i've been painting and i think it could be something that will grow into something big hopefully sure sure at this point i just got to get the book done and see what happens because i I know i'm the same way you just have a whole list of things that you're trying to get through and check them off and then as soon as you check something off there's like five more things that come up i think that's like that for every art every artist i know is in that boat you know yeah and it's it's harder. It's even harder when you got um, when you have to do a day job. Yeah, it is. I find I find it um, that fuck tires you out, man. I'm tired. Like at the end of the day, if I work nine to five, then I have dinner. I'll try to do some exercise. Trying to work from eight to twelve at midnight, you're tired. Oh, I mean, man. like when I was doing shows at La Luz and I was working full time, that's when I would paint from eight at night. Yep. So 12 or one in the morning and I'm just wiped, but I did it, you know, I have to to do it. That's what I did that for, uh, like the first seven years, I think in, in effects or in a, when I was doing the fine art thing from around early two thousands to like 2009, I was doing working in effects in the day and then working at night, every single night work. As soon as I got home, I'd start painting. And then on the weekends too. And I yeah. did that 
for seven years, but yeah. I was like, you know, I was in my thirties. And so I was able to do that. Yeah. And, you know, now I'm in my fifties and it's like, I can't right. fucking do it anymore. I can't yeah. do that. I couldn't do that you schedule. Tired. You get tired for sure. It's hard to keep the energy up. You know, coffee yep. is only so good. It only works so much. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's, that's another reason too, is I, I just have less physical energy, so I can't, I'm really just trying to focus on the main thing I want. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's, that's another thing. One of my problems I think over the years is that I've, I've tried to, I, I, I have a hard time focusing on one thing. Like I wanted to do comics and then I wanted to do right. animation and then, you know, fine art. And then I was dabbling in music and then mm-hmm. maybe I could be a writer too. And then maybe <laughs> I could write a screenplay. Wait a minute. I could do a horror movie. It's like, wait a minute. I got to just like dial it back and figure out what I'm good at or what, what time will allow. And I'm just very bad at like knowing how long, like when I'm doing a painting, how long this painting will take. Oh, I'll just do it in a night. It takes five nights. Yeah, exactly. I, I just have no concept of how long things will take. I still do that all the time. I'm, 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 I'm like way too optimistic with timelines. Yeah. Like I think, Oh, I could do this painting in two days. And then it's like, it takes a week and it's like, yeah. okay, that's screwed. I, that That's a really common thing with artists though. Like creative, yeah. creative people is being wanting to do everything, you know? And uh, not choosing one thing. That's super common. I mean, every yeah. artist I know has that that issue, I think. Yeah, but I find a lot, of, like for you at least, you have a style that you work in that's consistent. And people know it when they see it. I think I sometimes bounce around with my styles. I, mm. have, I have three or four different styles that I could work in. A comic book style, the cartoony style. I have a pop art style that's more colorful so in a way i think that hurts me yeah but yeah just, my mind i just can't stop bouncing around you know yeah yeah that that's one thing i've been good about when i when i found when i found something that was working in the fine art which was these monster portraits i was like yeah. okay i'm gonna do monster portraits i'm going with this yeah. realistic monster portraits yeah and that's what i'm gonna do because it's just like that was selling and and they were uh it was enjoyable and and it hit all the the boxes for me so i've been good about i've been good about being disciplined with um staying focused on a on a style yeah but i do you know every time i see something that's a different style i'm like oh i wish i could do that or i want to try that i know i could do it or you know and music as well it's like i love music and i'm I'm a musician and i love writing music and um filmmaking all that stuff you know so for me it's like my my plan into the future is get this book dystopia book done. I funded it on Kickstarter. It's three years right. three years late. Uh-huh. It's killing me. Yeah. Finish that whole project. Get all. I still have rewards that are due. It's 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 terrible. Um, except people are being super understanding. It's the only reason I haven't fucking hung myself. Right. But uh, <laughs> uh, get that book done, and then once the book's done, you know, then I can maybe make a comic book of that or try and do short yeah. films of that. That would be awesome. You yeah, know, once, once, heavy metal, man, heavy metal. Publish yeah, that. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. That's t- talk about your involvement with heavy metal, because I know a lot of people who listen to the show are huge fans of the, uh, heavy metal magazine. Um, I grew up on that, man. That was a huge influence on my life right at the right time. Sure. Right at the right time. I found Giger 
and I found Heavy Metal magazine. Right. It was like the late seventies or whenever Alien came out, eighty yeah. or somewhere around there. So what's you work with them? Yeah, so I, I found Heavy Metal in like the early eighties when I was like I was reading X Men and Marvel and DC and stuff, and then I found Heavy Metal and I was like, what is this? It was like an issue that had all the greats, right? Libertor was doing Rank Xerox, Drew Lay was in it, right. Mobius, Pepe Moreno. <laughs> I think um, Charles Burns was in it. It was just amazing. And I opened up the pages and I was like, what is this? It was like there was sex and violence and gore and the stories and the colors. Yeah, amazing. All those European guys, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before Right. in comics. And after I bought it, I was just blown away. I wanted to throw away all my superhero comics. I'm like, this is crap. Like, this is crap. Yeah, same this here. This is where the real stories are. And I just started finding as many back issues of that as I could. And um, I loved it. I mean, I read Eerie and Creepy, and those were cool, but those were large, you know, those were black and white. The right. heavy metal was like full color, sci-fi, horror, just jumping out of the page at you. Yeah. Um, and I always loved it. And then when he, uh, Kevin Eastman bought it in the early 90s, I was sometimes hanging out up at uh, the Tundra studio up in Northampton. I kind of knew Kevin a little bit at that time, but it wasn't until later that he asked me at, at, at Comic-Con. He was like, oh, man, he goes, you've been, you've been at this game for a while, but as long as I have. He goes, why don't you, uh, why don't you take an issue of heavy metal and edit it? I'm like edit it like, what do you mean he goes you pick all the stories you call the shots the cover everything just go for it i'm like that's amazing yeah i'm like i can totally do that all right <laughs> sounds pretty that good sounds great so <laughs> heavy metal 271 was the first issue that like i edited all myself and uh you know i just picked a bunch of my stuff and people that i liked and some foreign guys and people that i was working with with asylum press which is my little you know boutique comic book publishing company and put all those guys in there and uh it was a great issue like people really loved it that saw it like it really had a feel of like classic 70s and 80s heavy metal so that went over really well so then he let me do another one which was uh 277 and i put you know um steve mannion and you know uh uh William Broad was in there and Robert Ryan and just the Nina Gusunja and a bunch of guys that I really liked that you never have never had the opportunity to be in heavy metal that I thought were good enough. Brought those guys in, got some classic guys. And then um Jeff Krellitz bought it and then he liked what I was doing. So he was like, why don't you come on and be a content editor? So since 277, I've been on the masthead as like a an editor. Um, wow. so yeah, people out there are always looking for stuff. The thing with heavy metal is, you know, it, it's, it's pretty much like a submission basis. Like they really want you to come up with, they want you to write it, draw it, color it, and then submit on spec. It's kind of, a lot of people don't want to do that, but right. it's just the way heavy metal always is. If you're a independent comic book creator that writes, draws and and you're going to like write and draw this comic anyway, because you want to, right. because your wheelhouse to just write and draw short science fiction horror stories <clears throat> um then submit them to heavy metal uh you <clears throat> excuse me you could submit a script but it takes a lot longer for the editors to go through the script and read it they don't really want to take the time although they're doing more of it to put you with an artist 
<coughs> excuse me. They don't really set up. They never really set up artists and writers together. Now they're doing more of that, but they're doing it with more well-known comic creators. Like they're trying to bring Marvel, DC, Image, and Dark Horse guys into heavy metal, right? Right. The top, you know, more well-known creators. But they're still looking for those unknown creators that submit. And there are people that just would write and draw a story anyway and just submit it. And it doesn't pay that much. I think the licensing fee is like 80 bucks a page. Mm-hmm. So it's not much, but you keep the rights. Oh, that's, that's and, great. Yeah. No, really the licensing fee was more for people that, all right, you're going to sell in English. You're going to sell it to a French publication, an Italian publication, a Spanish publication, a German publication. And if you license your story to all those different places, then you're going to make, you know, maybe three, 400 a page. Then right. it's worth it. Right. So right. that's really where the licensing fee comes into. They're really expecting you to be selling it all over in different languages. Right. You know, they don't own the rights, so you keep anything you own. That's why that some people say, oh, the 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 page rate is so low. It's it's really more of a licensing fee than anything. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's I mean, that's uh, we talked about this when way back when, and the, the only reason I haven't been able to submit something is just the time thing, but. Like I said, once I get my my book done and um, I get in a position where I could do that, I mean, I, I sure. really want to do it. Can anyone out there, if they want to submit, uh, my email at heavy metal is forte, F O R T E, at heavymetal.com. And it's really, if you could send in pages of art with dialogue, finished comic pages is really the best way to get into heavy metal. If it's just a script, it, it just takes a lot longer. You know, if you're a writer, find an artist that's willing to do a short story on spec, four to 10 pages, keep them short, twist ending, black Mm -hmm. tales of the crypt. That's kind of what they're looking for. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's funny. There's this one um, issue that is like the big one for me. And I don't know what the number is. I know that it has, let me think. It's got this weird, I don't even remember, remember the artist or anything. I, I know it's got this weird, like French evil circus. It seems like French or European. Like it, uh-huh. there's, a, there's a story of an evil circus to where uh-huh. there's like a guy, the ringleader, and he's kind of, it's a weird pen and ink style, but like watercolor. And he's uh, like, that was the Wrightson story, wasn't that? No, the what, it wasn't Bernie. Cereal? I don't, sure? I don't. Because he did Freak Show. That was Freak Show was serialized in the eighties. That's not the one. He did he do the artwork for it? Yeah. No, uh-huh. this this was definitely okay. not this I'm sure this wasn't him. It uh-huh. was like I remember all the blood was black. <clears throat> uh-huh. And it was like this ring evil ringleader. It was really surreal. Uh-huh. It wasn't cartoony. Right. It was like bizarre. And th- sure. this guy was like, you know, just doing all this creepy shit within this kind of circus environment. Uh-huh. And there was also like uh Oh my god, I can't remember now. There's a really cool kind of a a space um epic like uh post-apocalyptic kind of guys in s- space suits in this kind of uh-huh. post-apocalyptic world. Right. Um I think there was that Dr- Druna um Oh yeah, right. was in yeah. there which Sir Pierre, fucking, that, that was a great series. Uh, incredible. The artwork yeah. was just unbelievable. Uh-huh. Um I'll, I have it somewhere. I have to find it because that was the one that was like, oh shit. Cause I got, I, I actually, I discovered Giger and heavy right. metal from this 
my, a friend of my brother's, my, my, my brother is older than me and his friend was going to CalArts. And uh, from what he told me, CalArts was just a madhouse back then. Like everybody was fucking tripping all the time and doing yeah, really? all kinds of drugs. Wow. And yeah, and I had another, my friend Jim Beinke was also um, there. That's, I think that's how I, that's how I met Beinke. Jim Beinke right. through this friend uh-huh. of my brother's. Um, and it was just like, I, I remember I almost went to CalArts actually. I applied really? wow. and everything. I got a grant. And then I, at the wow. last minute, I was like, I, I want to do makeup effects, you know? I, I, right. I so I, I bailed at the last minute, but I went up and toured the camp, the campus, and it looked, it was all these like weirdo artist types that were just, it was so cool. It was just so much creativity yeah. and, and, um, yeah, right. um, really looked like it would have been a lot of fun to go there. Yeah, but, yeah, I've um, been up to that campus too. It does look like it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. This was like, I must've been, this was, I graduated in high school in 85. So it must've been in 1985. I went up there and it was, it was a trip. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I, re- I remember too, like, like around the same time I was finding out about Giger and heavy metal. And when I saw the Giger stuff, man, I was like, you're just blown away. No one was, Oh my god! Near that—that that was so different and so bizarre and so freaky. You just couldn't help but like it. If you were into anything horror, or dark, yeah, you saw those books, Necronomicon yep. and um, New York City. I also had, yeah, um, those were yeah that those was amazing. You can't you can't really overstate how huge Geeker was to people that have grown up with him now. Because he's, you know, he's within our circle. There's a lot of younger people. He's always kind of been there. But at the time, there was nothing like it. There was nothing like it. It was, oh. it, it was, it kind of changed my life, really. That, yeah. That was like totally, completely changed how I saw art, really. No, you know? totally. And I even went through a period in the 90s where I started, I was doing airbrush paintings, black yep. and white. Same here. Stencils. Same I was here. Like, I want to be Giger. I want to be like Giger. <laughs> I totally went through the Giger. I got a ton of them. Yeah, I it's went through the Giger, the Giger phase in Giger. high in high school. I got an airbrush. Yeah, and I got. I remember I was painting with like black, white, and, yeah. and that kind of bluish yeah. color. You know, I was trying to mimic it. I don't know that. And I, I was and, and he was like, I was reading into it, like, oh, he found industrial stencils from this factory. I'm like, I got to go find stencils, like <laughs> cutouts from metal shops and. <laughs> where do I find these? And like, I'm, I'm going to home Depot and like finding stencils, these weird shapes. And I was even cutting them out of plastic. And like, Oh, we got <laughs> stencils. Giger, these stencils. That's the, that's, that's the secret. That's yeah, the secret stencil. that he has. <laughs> I thought, uh, did you see the Giger documentary? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Was, I mean, it, it was great, but kind of sad that it caught him later in life. I, I wish know it was, it was, I wish it was made more when he was in his prime. You know? It was kind of sad. I thought it was uh, a yeah. kind of a downer, but still very good. And I don't know yeah. if it's in that documentary, but um, there's another documentary I've seen, but, but I, I thought it was really interesting that he was saying that all his biomechanical work was, was all about um, the environment. It was all about right. the poisoning of the environment. And it was, right. it was like, he was kind of an environmentalist artist yeah, making right. a statement. Right. I was like, wow, that's even more powerful. I mean, they, those, sure. those images just work on their own because they're beautiful. But to know that that was his intent behind it, yeah, is like his statement, right? Incredible. And it's coming true. Yeah, you know? <laughs> totally. 
It's crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't have got that when I looked at it, but when you look at it now, you're like, yeah, it's, it's I guess how industry, right, industrial pollution, poisoning the environment. Yeah, you could see those, those themes through his work. Those for sure. ba- those babies, that wall of d- babies yeah. that are all diseased. I mean, that's yeah. totally it. And yeah, right. In that, do you remember when the Dead Kennedys used the penis landscape in their album, and they got uh, they almost got um, put in prison? Jello yeah, that yeah, that like shut that that shut down their distributor. Someone went to jail, I thought, and they were going to be did, up they didn't go. Yeah, right, so right. This is some crazy. Yeah, record, was, record store owner. Yeah, and because yeah. um, they said he, they he sold it to a minor. He right. sold this pornography to a minor and stuff. Yeah, and Jello's whole thing was it was it was an art piece. Right, but, but uh, the, you know, it's it's amazing how they used it. I don't know if you ever saw it in the album, the poster. It was hilarious because the album was called Frankenchrist. Frankenchrist, right? right. <laughs> and it, and the, the songs are all like very, um, you know, working people are screwed, and this kind of uh, dystop- dystopian future that right. we're kind of going into. And Jello said he used that image because it was like this is America on parade it's like all these people just fucking each other it's all these dicks going into these yeah, these right. dick like things I, going into these orifice like things and, it, and the poster says it's got like red white and blue um stars and stripes around the border and it says frankenchrist and it's got that painting in the middle it's so hysterical there was, there was cover but you're saying there was also a poster it was a poster yeah the, the cover right. is, is like the shriners in a parade which is a hilarious album cover too they're driving these little cars and um, you got you got the poster inside, and that's what oh, you got I see. So for. the Giger thing was the poster. I thought that was the cover. I no, guess. no, it was the poster. So then right, they they right. um they just stopped putting the poster in, but it broke the band oh, up I and see, everything. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did. Uh, it was great. I mean, look, bad press is good press, right? Yeah, except the except the band broke up after. I mean, it like, <laughs> kind of almost bankrupted Dead Kennedys. So yeah, right, right. You know what? I I, I think it was just. Was I just talking about, I was talking about this to someone. I don't know if it's on the podcast or not, but um, uh, there was an episode of This American Life where the, the journalist got Jello Biafra and the singer and the guy who sued them or the public, uh, public uh, attorney guy, attorney general that sued them, right. that tried to sue them. And the, the, the the whole thing was this guy was apologizing to Jello saying yeah I was wrong that was really we shouldn't have done it and Jello's Thanks. like yeah Jello's like oh okay well <laughs> you know my band it destroyed my band it almost yeah, bankrupted screw me you, right yeah such a bummer wow but uh, anyway I got to wrap this up because I got something I got to go to soon okay so, cool um, yeah, yeah great. it was excellent talking to you really interesting uh, yeah cool man great of, thanks for having me i appreciate yeah, a it. lot of a lot. I, I love the podcast too i love the brahm episode it was really great i'm gonna have to go back and listen to a bunch more of these yeah that was a great one i never listened to them though because i hate the sound of my voice so yeah. I, I i judge them when i'm doing them as sure. if, whether they're going to be good i do remember that one was was amazing um, sure but what are your i'll, I'll have it in the the uh in the description links and everything but where can people find your work uh, like frankforte.com is my website. Um, Frank Forte Art is my Instagram and Twitter. I mean, those are the things that I post most on. And you can find me on, um, I think it's Frank Forte Art as well on uh, Facebook. Uh, 
Goon Cartoons is my little YouTube channel where I do little cartoons and stuff. Um, you know, that, that's about it. That's where mostly I'm active on uh, on social. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And yeah, thanks, everybody. Yes, and thanks for supporting. And if you want to support, you can support the Patreon at patreon.com slash darkartsociety for as little as a dollar a month. And you keep the podcast free for everybody by by donating every month. It's really easy. If you don't like it, here's what I say. Try it out. It's only a dollar. If you don't like it, it's super easy to turn off your subscription or cancel it or pause it. It's very easy. So at least a month. Come on. A dollar. It's only a dollar. All right. And thank you for everybody who supports it already on there. It's um, it's really, you're making the podcast happen. So without you, we wouldn't be having this podcast for everybody. So again, thanks, Frank, for coming on. I had a great time. Yep, Th- thanks, thank you, man. everybody, for listening. And uh, until next time, goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.